Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to update you on the progress of the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. The good news is the program continues to grow. It's on target to surpass 15,000 monthly downloads for the first time this month. And listener support has reached a level, the second milestone out of four, where typical program costs are now covered. The fundraising goals have been modest as they have been met with the support of around 50 listeners in total. That is 50 listeners out of 15,000 monthly downloads. So even though the goals are modest, the effects of a small number of people are huge in this case. So if another 20 or 30 people who listened regularly were to pledge a dollar per episode, it would have a huge effect on the program's sustainability, whether being able to pay for web support, upgrade services, or create more content. If you're curious about the Patreon campaign, about becoming a supporter of the show, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers. You can also find other means and methods to support the program by going to davidnaman.com slash support. And you can check out the websites of all sorts of uh, creative and interesting people who have supported the show so far at davidnaman.com slash patrons. Enjoy today's program. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet Tayemba Jess. Jess's first book of poetry, Lead Belly, was a winner of the 2004 National Poetry Series. Library Journal and Black Issues Book Review both named it one of the best poetry books of 2005. Jess is a Kave Kanem alumnus and earned his MFA at New York University, and his honors include a Whiting Award, a Chicago Sun-Times Poetry Award, a Gwendolyn Brooks Open Mic Poetry Award, a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, and a Lannan Writing Residency. Jess has taught at Juilliard, at the University of Illinois, and at the College of Staten Island, and his writing has been anthologized in Angles of Ascent, a Norton Anthology of Contemporary African-American Poetry, and Roll Call, a generational anthology of social and political black literature and art, among many others. Tayemba Jess is here today to talk about his second collection, Olio, Eight Years in the Making and Out from Wave Books. 
The Boston Globe calls Olio one of the most inventive, intensive, poetic undertakings of the past decade. Library Journal calls Olio a formally risky collection that proves to be a character-rich, historically-informed page-turner. Olio has been called operatic, an extended performance, an epic libretto, both a celebration of the works and lives of African-American musicians before the Harlem Renaissance and a subversive account of how black musicians have been exploited by whites from the get-go. Poet Nikki Finney perhaps says it best of all, this 21st century hymnal of black evolutionary poetry, this almanac, this theatrical melange of miraculous meta-memory, Tahemba Jess is inventive, prophetic, wondrous. He writes unflinchingly into the historical clefts of blackface, black sound, human sensibility. After the last poem is read, we have no idea how long we've been on our knees. Welcome to Between the Covers, Tayemba Jess. Thank you. Good, great to be here. Well, let's start with what an oleo is. Right. So, so what is an oleo? Well, oleo, O-L-I-O, is uh, uh, a mix and melange of ingredients uh, that make up a kind of a meal, a stew, so to speak, in, in the traditional sense. In the, in, the, in the tradition of American theater, it is the middle part of the minstrel show where there was a variety of acts. So it could be a, a singer, a dancer, a juggler, a, a comedian, a contortionist, etc., all together into this one act. And uh, that continued throughout the 19th century. In the, in the 20th century, uh, the oleo evolved into vaudeville, so to speak. So um, that is what, uh, that's, that's what the oleo is in the, in the context of this book. And for our listeners who don't know, what is a minstrel show? Right. Uh, a minstrel show was a, a fundamental element of American entertainment throughout the 19th and early 20th century. And uh, it, it involved mostly uh, white actors putting on blackface to make caricatures of black people and make com- comedic sketches of, uh, of black folks. Um, and uh, it also evolved to the point where there were black comedians that put on blackface, and yeah, it was uh, it was it was connected with uh, uh, the image of the of uh, of sambos, coons, etc. So it's it's a very uh, difficult area of uh, American history to traverse. Uh, it's it's fraught with a lot of uh, a lot of really ugly imagery and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of ugly ideology. Well, at the beginning of of the oleo the, the oleo that you create, um, you start by introducing the cast the cast of mm-hmm. the musicians and performers that you've assembled for for the people you want to portray and also reclaim. And I was curious about the process you went through. Uh, to choose who was going to be included, what were the criterion that would allow someone to be possibly considered, and then how did you go about figuring out who was going to be there? You know, um, that was a... What happened is essentially the book took seven or eight, seven to eight years, more or less, to to write, and uh, that involved a lot of uh, reading about 19th century uh, 
events and figures. And there were some people I was interested in. I wanted to get them in the book. I couldn't get them in. And there were others that, that, that made it. But it really, some, it, it depended to a certain degree on the complexity of the, of the form that, was, that I was trying to use to approach the, uh, the, the people that appear in the book. And, and, and to another extent, um, who I thought I would be able to capture the best given the forms that I knew that I could I could grasp within the the pages of the of the manuscript. So there was, you know, it was more or less kind of um going into the nineteenth century and, and kind of walking through all of these people and some of them connected, some of them not, and trying to figure out which ones were going to, to I, w- I would be able to lend the best voices to. Yeah. Yeah. But also this period between the Civil War and, and World War One straddles mm-hmm. um, pre-recording, time yes. before recordings, and yes. then recorded music, mm-hmm. and also um, slavery and, and then emancipation mm-hmm. sort of straddles this time period yes. also. So it's, it's an interesting choice that you make. Yeah, I was also interested in people that had never been recorded. Uh, Nobody. Well, there's only one person in the book of whom there is there are any recordings, and that would be Burt Williams. Um, but there, there. I was interested in the uh, the legacy of black music before the dawn of uh, of commercial recording, where of widespread commercial recording, and uh, the question was, uh, well, what what was what were the black musicians doing before, you know, really basically 1912, 13, 14, around there? Um, and and what, what were uh, black creatives trying to, uh, trying to manifest between, right after the Civil War when you had a newly freed population that was having a new experience with the ability to create of their own volition, uh, using the instruments that they design, that they wanted to use, uh, use singing the songs that they wanted to sing uh, for the people that they wanted to sing to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, under the under the uh, under the the um, with the with the benefits of emancipation. So. That was that was part of my question as well. well I was curious. I, I imagine that for most white people, reading your book will be a, their first introduction to a lot of these musicians. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's partially due to erasure out of mm-hmm. shame about this time period. I don't know. But is is this would most of these um, people be uh, well known to people in the African American community, or is that also a forgotten? era for well, uh, for African American culture too. I'll say this, um I knew some um, I knew some of the people in the book, but I didn't know <clears throat> for instance, I didn't know very much about Emonia Lewis. Emonia Lewis was by far the most successful African American artist of the 19th century. She sold $50,000 commissions in the l- uh, latter half of the 19th century, and she was a, she was a world-renowned sculptor. I knew about the the Fish Jubilee singers, and I knew about spirituals, but I didn't know much about the actual 
original troupe of the uh, Fist Jubilee Singers, the first, you know, uh, troupe of intrepid young men and women that, you know, set forth uh, around the world to spread the to spread the, the sound of free blackness around the world in, in Europe and in front of kings and queens and uh, in front of presidents, etc. I didn't really know very much at all about Sissy Retta Jones, who was uh, the first uh, African-American to sing at Carnegie Hall, or uh, I knew very little about Blind Boone, fascinating character, blind at the age of six months, uh, who was had a prodigious career. Uh, you know, so a lot of this, a lot of the folks here were uh, a, kind of a revelation to me. And in reading about their lives, I was uh, constantly uh, surprised and, and amazed at their, at their um, resilience and at, their, at the odds that they had to face and the ways that they found to preserve their integrities uh, despite, you know, very difficult odds. So, you know, I think part of the issue is, is that, is that um, if we were living 100 years ago, we would, we would know who these people are. But uh, uh, given the fact that none of them were recorded and uh, there, there are really not very many Photographs, I mean, for instance, Henry Box Brown. I don't believe there. I don't know that there are any photographs of him. I, I could be wrong, uh, but uh, had a fascinating career as a as a kind of lecturer and as a mesmerist in Britain. Huh. And yeah, you know, I, I had no idea. I knew that he had done the amazing feat of escaping from slavery by putting himself in a two-by-three box and mailing himself from Virginia to Philadelphia, but I didn't know anything about his performing career. And that is the kind of thing that, uh, that fascinated me about, uh, about this particular era. Yeah. Well, you mentioned at the beginning that Oleo is the second part of the minstrel show, but it also means hodgepodge or a mm -hmm. stew of, of different ingredients. Yes. And that def this book definitely fulfills that aspect of it, too. It's got fiction. It's got nonfiction. It's got poetry. It's got historical documents. It's got imagined historical documents. It's got illustrations. It's got photography. It's got foldouts. It's got tables. And it's got timelines. It's got a lot in, in this Oleo. And... It's pretty common when I have guests on the show that maybe it takes them a long time between books. And the common um, response is, well, I got stuck on something conceptually or, or I had writer's block. But it's really clear when you look at this book and when you read this book that it would require this much time to figure out how to put this together. And when people talk about the, um, the way that it's both experimental and, and engaging and and easy to go through and, and formally risky and historical and yet somehow contemporary. I have to say like, I'm, it's, it's a book that I really feel a lot of awe about and I, a lot of curiosity because of that awe, um, on how in the world do you put this together? So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about post lead belly, your first book, mm -hmm. how this started to come together as a concept what were the fits and starts, and then and then um, and then some of the challenges. 
wow. Well, after uh, after Lead Belly, I was in a pr- pretty dormant state uh, for a little while. I was uh, uh, trying to catch up with a lot of uh, things in my life, and um, I was kind of stuck in the voices in Lead Belly for for quite a while. That book took five years to complete, so uh, it took me a little while to, while to switch gears. Um, and writing Olio really started with Blind Tom and uh, writing these sonnets, the crown of sonnets in Blind Tom. And writing, the, for me, uh, using form, sonnets, huzzles, uh, haiku, etc., was a kind of uh, uh, way out of the voice that, that was trapped in my head. And uh, it was, I was able to um, break out of the lead belly voice and, and, and to access a different kind of narrative, so to speak. So um, that, was, um, that was quite, that, that, that was the, the beginning of the flow for Olio. And really, I just started trying to uh, push the uh, the idea of a contrapuntal book, a book that would use counterpointed uh, poems, and push that to the extreme as far as I could take it. And then um, some of the other folks came into the book, you know, like the Fish Jubilee Singers, Burt Williams and George Walker and the McCoy twins. And really, though, after, it wasn't until about five and a half years in that I, that the the form of the whole book started to become clear, that I, it was uh, what the layout of the book was going to look like. Yeah. And that was a, that was actually a sigh of relief. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that point, it was probably about 160 pages in. And, um, Maybe 180. I don't know, and uh, and then it became a matter of trying to trying my best to uh, to do due diligence with the rest of the rest of the book. You know. Yeah. Well, let's. I'd like to talk more about this idea of the um, counterpoint uh, poem. Mm-hmm. There are some things that are in, similar with Lead Belly. One of them, they're both about both books are addressing African-American musicians. Also, musicians playing under the white gaze and trying to reclaim music and trying to um, stay authentic in a potentially compromised scenario, I would, uh-huh. I would say, in their, in their performances. But um, the other thing that's, that there's some similarity with in the two books is, the, is this counterpoint, the two in- intermeshed voices. Um, you have in an Olio Blind Boone meets Blind Tom, the many McCoy sisters poems, the Burt Williams George Walker paradox, the right. Dunbar Booker double shovel, um, and in Lead Belly you have the Lead Belly Al Lomax poems. Right. I, I know there's some similarities, and then there's some big departures. Mm-hmm. Could you, could you talk about the ways in which those two are um, related and and yeah. different from each other? Yeah. Um, well, in in Lead Belly. Um, there is no use of form, so to speak, in the contrapuntal poems. And in Olio, the primary difference is that there is a lot of use of form, 
with the contrapuntal uh, poems. So you have uh, syncopated sonnets, you have uh, paradoxal hustles, <laughs> you have uh, the double shovel, as you mentioned. Um, and so, so really, the idea was to, to the, it was to take the, that concept from Lead Belly and to bring it into the uh, into the into the uh, into the strictures of form, but also to bend form so that it so that form could do something different than it had was previously doing. Uh, and also, it was the idea of uh, double consciousness. That is uh, that was uh, expressed by W. B. Du Bois, with in uh, Souls of Black Folks. He's talking about you know the idea of m- working with two two different uh, two different mindsets in order to function uh, completely as a as a throughout the uh, throughout uh, throughout one's everyday life. As an African American, and I guess I guess I would say the the contrapuntals in or, in Olio were more, like I said, directed towards that idea of of taking the contrapuntal and stretching it as far as I possibly could, and f- as far as I know, it has been been stretched. So, um. That is that is one of the critical differences. Like the the idea of the double consciousness is more pronounced. The idea of uh, the idea to let the reader make their own decisions as to how they are going to uh, take themselves through the poem started to be started to make itself known throughout the uh, throughout the construction of the book, and uh, the idea that that the that the reader can. And the subject of the poem can take a take a two dimensional surface and make it a three dimensional uh, uh, object. Became uh, kind of a, a, a minor motif in the poem in mm. in the in the manuscript. So all of those things started to run together, you know. Yeah. yeah. You, maybe a good example is to talk about the conjoined twins, the right. McCoy sisters, mm-hmm. because. Um, essentially you create these conjoined poems, poems that right. you can read down either side as if you're reading just the voice of one of the sisters, or you can read across and it still makes sense as if you're reading a shared voice right. of the two sisters, kind of like their shared circulatory system. Right. Um, that was amazing to behold as a reader, but it was even more amazing to see you perform because there were all levels of complexity I didn't realize until I saw you read them that you could actually read the poems from the bottom up, right. diagonally, and you even have a page where you can put all of the McCoy sisters' poems together and form a super body, yes, and then read across poems. Star of syncopated sonnets. Okay, and uh, the and the meaning is is coheres no matter what choice you make mm-hmm. with this. Can you both talk about the McCoy sisters, mm-hmm. and then maybe shed a little bit of light on it, what feels I don't want to call it a magic trick because it's it's clearly art, but there is a magical element to yeah. what you've done. And how how did you stumble upon this? Uh, uh, you this know, ability? well, first the McCoy twins uh, were Pygopagus twins, born into slavery in the Carolinas in 1849. 
They were, uh, if you could imagine, two women standing back to back, but they are joined through basically the bottom of the rib cage all the way through the pelvis with two separate arm, separate set of arms, separate, you know, separate uh, heads, legs, etc., just explicitly joined through the, uh, through the spine and into the, in, in, in through the pelvis. And the poems that were made to uh, talk about their lives uh, makes an effort to assume, assume a kind of concrete form of, of poetry. Concrete just means that the poem looks like the, uh, the object that it is talking about. Okay, so um, in in constructing those poems, really, I was led to led to the construction of those poems through, to back up for a second, through the poems in the Blind Tom section, because the if you know if you look at the poems in the there's a lot of poems about uh, another uh, performer who is uh, autistic and blind named Blind Tom, who was also born around 1849 who uh, was owned by the, the same family basically until he died in the early 1900s. But in, that, in those poems, I started to make contrapuntal, uh, contrapuntal poems that, that had the kind of flexibility that I later used for the McCoy twins. Mm. And so um, I don't know how much of this your audience is getting because well, they be- just have to go by the book. <laughs> would you but, would you read um, um, McCoy twin poem? Sure, poems? I will. Uh, but it, it's it. I will, I will re- read it with the caveat, and uh, that I am. I will do my best to try to explain to the audience what is happening while I am while I am reading it. And so here we go. Let me see. If you look at the poem, you see an X. The X is composed of. Lines that go down in three columns, uh, one on the left, one in the middle, one in the, on the right. If you start on the left and read down the first two lines, you read, We've mended two songs in the one dark skin, bleeding soprano into contralto. If you look on the right, you read these two lines. We ride the wake of each other's rhythm, beating our hearts' syncopated tempo. If you read those lines directly across, they read, we've mended two songs in the one dark skin. We ride the wake of each other's rhythm, bleeding soprano into contralto, beating our hearts' syncopated tempo. And then beneath those lines, you would find two more lines, which would be the shared lines of each of the twins. They would say together, we're fused in blood and body from one thrum stem, but in twin blooms of song, we're a doubled rose. So in that way, that's just, that's just a small taste of, of the conjoining of two voices into one. Yeah. It's and hard so, to explain over the radio. And so there's an innumerable number of ways you could read this out loud. Yes. Would, would you read the poem one way for us? What I'll, read, what I'll do is I'll take those last lines that I read, yeah. and I'll read them in reverse. So this is from the bottom going up. Okay. But in twin blooms of song, we're a double rose. We're fused in blood and body from one thrum stem, bleeding soprano into contralto, beating our hearts syncopated tempo. We've mended two songs in the one dark skin. We ride the wake of each other's rhythm. 
So this, those are the exact same lines that I read, but read backwards, so to speak. And so the, the reader has the choice to read down and up, and also uh, really basically diagonally when you, uh, when you yeah. explore uh, the poem fully. And all of this sounds super daunting if you're not looking at the right. poem right now, but it is actually really engaging and accessible at the same time, which is kind I'm of... glad the, to hear that. <laughs> it's the miracle of it, I think, is that you've done that. You, you've said that the oleo, um, that oleo has a circular motif and that yes. the number seven is also important in the book. And yes. I, was, I was curious about both of those things. Does the circularity have to do with this idea of being able to read from bottom to it top does. or top to it bottom? It does. It does, have, it does have to do with the idea of being able to read from top to bottom and bottom to top. It also has to do with the idea that uh, there are some poems that you can uh, literally tear off the book because they are perforated pages. And you can manipulate the page into cylinders, into uh, the, uh, essentially into a torus, T-O-R-U-S, which is basically a donut, uh, and, or into a Mobius strip. Uh, so that's kind of another demonstration of circularity. Um, the other demonstration, the other circularity lies in a, a double, uh, double crown of sonnets in the book that uh, goes from the beginning all the way through the entire book and uh, is about uh, the Fist Jubilee Singers. And so the vi in a crown of sonnets, the very first line of the first poem becomes the very last line of the of the. I should say the very last line of the first poem becomes the first line of the next poem and so on and so on until the last line of the last poem becomes the first line of the first poem. So it forms a circle like mm -hmm. a crown. And so that is another aspect of circularity. Um, another aspect is, uh, is the fact that you're dealing with history and history tends to repeat itself. And that is more... I, I couldn't be more um, uh, more poetically and tragically displayed than the uh, list of burned churches in the book that starts from 1822 and goes up to 2015. But at the very the very first church is uh, the very last church that's listed in that particular list, so it was really met, met, uh, met a certain kind of devastation twice historically. Um, so there's a lot of circles going on in the book. And sevens, there's, uh, there's essentially seven distinct sections, and there's a lot of sevens in it because really, the, really I, got, I got that the, the idea of a, a crown of sonnets got stuck in my head. And uh, Crown of Sonnets usually has seven poems in it. And so really, it kind of started with the very first sequence, which is Blind Tom. And it, and it kind of bloomed from there. Does the seven nod towards the Sabbath and the Jubilee year in the Bible? That's a good one. That's a good one, too. Yes. That's, uh, as a matter of fact, that's, that's really interesting you would say that because... Uh, the book was finished in 2015, which would be the third jubilee after 1865. Hmm. 
So wow. Jubilee is fi- is essentially 50 years, 40, 49 to 50 years, you know. Uh, so, you know, the Jubilee is go is biblical. After seven sevens, there is a period of forgiveness and uh, forgiveness of debts, of uh, letting slaves free, etc. And that is why the Fisk singers are called Jubilee singers, because they were singers of freedom, of Jubilee. And the book was finished in 2015. I was 50 years old. <laughs> I'm still, you know, it was, so it was a lot. There were a lot of things that kind of wrapped up together, yeah. and you know, uh, made uh, made that made it a kind of special moment for me, and, yeah. and I guess that translated into the book. Well, speaking of the the macro and the micro aspect of the book. Um, one of the ways the book I think is really interesting is that you introduce a cast of characters. You've you've curated the show in a sense in our in in one regard the MC of this this the interlocutor of the Olio right. Yeah. Um, so there's always this sense of this cohesive superstructure for the uh-huh. book, but there's also a way in which each performer's individual history, each figure um, has its own distinct form in this, and and then sort of claims their own sort of entire universe so you mentioned the the burn the burn churches so every time the jubilee singers sing we get more of the lists of the uh churches that have been burned yes when the mccoy sisters appear we get the syncopated sonnets um and then whenever we're or often when we're engaging with scott joplin we're in the interview format um it kind of echoes the sense of the way each of these artists are trying to bend form mm-hmm. to to preserve or to assert authenticity mm-hmm. um and you have this quote from blind boone uh tell the story straight and true so that the joke's not on you but all around you and i was hoping you could maybe speak to that quote in in light of um the ways different musicians employ strategies to find yeah. or to assert their authenticity in right. a art form that's sort of inherently compromised because it's 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 an art form that doesn't recognize or happens at the expense of their humanity in 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 the purpose of it existing in the first place Talk the, about minstrels. The, the minstrel mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know i think i think that when when blind boone is is saying that to his interv- to his uh interviewer he's talking about preserving your own integrity in the midst, in the face of uh, very tricky and shifting odds, uh, and uh, telling the story in such a way that uh, that you keep sight of your own positionality, uh, telling the story in such a way that you remind yourself that you're in the middle of a story and and that you kind of have the opportunity to shape your story so to speak I think that's that's what he's what he's talking about there um, and I think that he's he's being interviewed by somebody who's really intrigued about the the life and demise of Scott Joplin hmm. and he's also giving a kind of a warning to that person 
about the things that they're looking for and what they expect and what they might find. And I think that, that if you, I think that it's a, a, a difficult, there, there's a multi, multitude of decisions that uh, African-American artists, African-American people have to make on a regular day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis to deal with the kind of uh, microaggressions or the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, 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 downright straight-up aggression and the, uh, the kind of uh, 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 difficult, difficult moments and awkward moments that we have to deal with that make us decide for ourselves how, how we're going to deal with those issues in order to avoid the specter of the minstrel show, in order to avoid becoming the minstrel, in order to av- avoid becoming played, so to speak, right. and made two-dimensional instead of realizing our own three-dimensional realness. And that's, I think that's, that's a constant in every field of endeavor in when you're dealing with a white supremacist society, when you're uh, dealing with uh, all of the kind of echoes of history that come from the, the, uh, the minstrel milieu in which these characters had to deal with every day. Yeah. And of course, each of the people in Olio are going to have really different strategies to either yes. a- avoid the minstrel show or try to subvert it. Some of them are going to Europe. Yeah. Some of them call them their own act to real coons. Right. Sort of taking the name and then distorting it and delivering it back. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's 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 hard reading about all of that history um and seeing the way that 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 uh folks were trying to uh preserve their integrity and uh, were trying to uh preserve their freedom <laughs> you know and their lives in many occasions um was a real lesson for me about uh about, well, I guess about the ways that uh, the ways that those same strategies are being employed today, you know. So, yeah, Burt Williams and George Walker called their act two real coons." Uh, they did that in an effort to really to drum up business for themselves and and really kind of slip a. a, a a weird inside joke on the minstrel industry, so to speak. So instead of seeing white folks dress up in blackface, why not see two real black folks dress up in blackface? Why not, instead of seeing white folks try to act black, why not see black folks being black? You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, you know, I think they, they were able to produced some of the first uh, independent black theater productions. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, 
therein lies the paradox that they were forced to deal with on a regular regular basis and that paradox of like being exploited and also um asserting authenticity at the same time potentially mm -hmm. I feel like you did this great job in your choice of illustrator. Like oh, I, when yeah. I think of the, uh, particularly there's one image that I love of, of a piano player and his body is all contorted so that he's facing away from the piano while he's playing it. Right. There's this sense of ambivalence and tension and conflict in the actual act of making the, the music. Can, can you talk about what the illustrations are doing? Jessica Lynn Brown out of Missouri, uh, is a fascinating artist that I discovered via the internet um, who, like that particular illustration you're talking about, that, that's Blind Tom. Yeah, you know, you know, a scene from a, uh, one of the poems where he would, this is one of the things that he would do, is he would play the piano behind his back, you know. So um, I, I think I was really lucky to run across her because I think the, the sparseness and the energy of her, uh, of her very raw but very sophisticated uh, drawings gives the reader a kind of space to, uh, to release from the, I mean, release from all of the, all of the, uh, the words, <laughs> and all the, all of the imagery in the words, and try to kind of, you know, it, it gives the reader a little bit of space. Yeah. To, to absorb everything that's happening in the book. And, and that, that, that was a real, I was a real, uh, a real stroke of luck to come across Jessica Lembrano. And just a, a weird aside, I read that she can simultaneously yes, write yeah. with both hands in opposite directions, yes, she which can. is kind of reminds yes, me of your poems. Exactly, and that's the reason why that when I saw that, she can, she can take dictation, more or less. You, you just say a line to her, she'll write with both hands going in opposite directions. Wow. And you, it's it's we it's almost when you see it happen it's it's really strange. Uh, it you kind of have to rub your eyes and ask yourself if you're if you're singing. But that's what she does. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, we I I found a contrapuntal po uh, um, artist. Yeah. And I I would I have to engage her in some kind of way and make the, make something happen in this project. So. You know, I I'd seen her work and blah, and I I kind of hemmed and hawed on it for for a little while because you know the book wasn't done, blah blah blah, and then, um, like in the last year, I think, fourteen or or so, I was like, yeah, you know, can you, you know, we talk about some drawings, et cetera, and we and we got it together. So yeah. I'm really really pleased because I think that she. She really does add another dimension to the to the book. I think so too. Yeah. You mentioned that that image is Blind Tom. Would would you be willing to read what sure. what marked Tom? Yes, I'd love to. What marked Tom? Did a slave song at a master's bidding mark Tom while asleep in Charity's womb? 
the whole plantation would be called to sing and dance in Master Epps' large parlor room. After work sprung from dawn and dragged past dusk. After children auctioned to parts unknown. After funerals and whippings. Thus was the whim of the patriarch. No groans allowed, just high-stepping celebration. Grins all around, gritted or sincere. Charity threw feet, hips, arms into motion to please the tyrant piano. Was it here Tom learned how music can prove the master while he spun in a womb of slavish laughter? You've been listening to Tyan Bajess read from his latest book of poetry, Olio. Well, to pivot to like a totally different tone in Olio, perhaps my favorite section of, of the book is the Freed Songs, uh-huh. which is your twinning of Henry Box Brown and John Berryman right. to, to blacken the voice of the character Henry in yeah. John Berryman's dream songs. So, mm-hmm. And as you say, to liberate Henry from literary bondage. <laughs> um, can you talk about that project, um, yeah. how it came to be, and in what ways the Freed songs and the dream songs mirror or diverge from each other as, right. as poems? Well, I call that the inside joke of the book. Inside joke because... Um, Dr. John Berryman is an obscure literary figure, but most of the people that know about him will be poets. John Berryman won the Pulitzer Prize for the Dream Songs in 1965. And uh, he has, he essentially positions, he he uses the voice of, of an imaginary um, kind of imaginary minstrel voice in order to voice his own anxieties of being white, male, you know, middle age, uh, and dealing with the various issues that he's that he uh, has to encounter in his life. And uh, now it's pretty much um, pretty much impossible to go through an MFA in the United States without hearing John Berryman's name or having read at least one of his poems, um, such as ha- what happened to me when I went through my MFA, actually with one of his protégés, uh, Philip Levine. Mm. And so upon receiving these poems and uh, upon understanding the fact that they were in this kind of minstrelized voice, um, I did. I really did not know how to process uh, how to process my uh, I guess I, I guess disappointment or uh, my uh, my my inability to be fully moved by his invocation of this black imaginary voice in his poems. And uh, so with that question mark forever being lit over my head regarding John Berryman, you know, I've, I walked around with that, I, that question mark in my head for many, many years. And I, I sought out as much critique as I could about uh, his, about his uh, racialization in, of his voice in, in uh, 
the Berryman poems, and I did not really have not really found a whole heck of a lot. So that was part one. Part two is I was really interested in Henry Box Brown, as I said, who had escaped from slavery by putting himself in a box and mailing himself to freedom and then was almost dragged back into slavery when he was assaulted on the streets of Philadelphia. And pretty much the very next week or so, he was on a boat to England where he became a performer, a very astute performer, and uh, continued that performance career for roughly 20-odd years uh, and became a mesmerist after the Civil War. Fascinating. <laughs> and so, but I was thinking, how do I tell his story? And there was all kinds of schemes I was developing that had to do with, you know, trying to make a three-dimensional poem, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But none of it was really working. But, uh, one, you know, suddenly one day one of those, those two ideas connected together. And the name that Berryman uses for his persona in the dream songs is Henry. And all of a sudden, it's, I, it just, I, I kind of toyed with the idea and then it started to come out. I took the sound, the exact sound of every one of these, I guess I use about, I guess, 13 poems or so. And I took the exact sound, you know, the vowel sounds of all these poems and I, I structured a narrative for Henry Box Brown following the line breaks, following the stanza breaks. So instead of, it's, it's almost like, a, it's trying to be like a riddle in a riddle in a riddle. Yeah. You know, or a voice in a voice in a voice, a mask in a mask in a mask, or, or who, and the question comes, who is wearing the mask? Because Berryman's voice is being incorporated to tell Henry Box Brown's voice, whereas Berryman's had originally meant, meant to co-opt or use this kind of black minstrelized voice to talk about his own pain. Now we have an opportunity for somebody who was in the middle of the height of the minstrel show and trying to get himself free and exercising his his uh, his freedom to um, uh, freedom that he had to you know scheme for. <laughs> in order to create new, uh, a kind of new vistas of expression when he went to England, all right? We have him using Berryman's voice, so. Would you be willing <laughs> to read uh, preface or, or preface? Yes, yeah, I would, yeah. Uh, uh, for, for your readers, what I'll, I'll explain that on one side of the poem, I'm going to read three things. I'll read, uh, I'll read John Berryman's side of the poem. Then I will read Henry Box Brown's side of the poem. And then I will read... Uh, the two sections together. Okay. So, this is, this incidentally, this quote from is directly from the preface of the dream songs. So, there's no, it's, it's verbatim from the preface. 
The poem, then, whatever its wide cast of characters, is essentially about an imaginary character, not the poet, not me, named Henry, a white American in early middle age, sometimes in blackface, who has suffered an irreversible loss and talks about himself. That is Berryman's quote. On the other hand, we have uh, Henry Box Brown's quote. It's imaginary, of course. Let me say, despite loss, I won my life. This story, how a slave steals back his skin, smuggles loose like I did. It lives on, but through words and free. I'm Box Brown. Ain't masking my truth. One day, I delivered myself. I ache my love for those left behind. Berryman can't talk for them. Can't tell my tale at all. So those two quotes are situated on either side of each other with a sejura going down the middle. Um, and when read together, they read, <clears throat> The poem then, let me say, Whatever its wide cast of characters, despite loss, I won my life. This story is essentially about how a slave steals back his skin. An imaginary character smuggles loose like I did. It lives on, not the poet, but through words and not me. Free. I'm named Henry Box Brown. Ain't a white American masking my truth. One day in early middle age... I delivered myself. Sometimes I ache in my blackface love for who has suffered, those left behind. An irreversible loss. Berryman can't talk for them and talks about himself. Can't tell my tale at all. We're talking today to poet Tyam Bajess, the author of Olio. You do some other unmasking of beloved characters. Uh, I think of Irving Berlin and, and Mark Twain, who um, you show in their own words some of the... Um, biases. Da- yeah, the biases and, and uh, ignoble mm-hmm. uh, actions that they do. Can, can you talk a little bit about how they um, play minor roles in, in Olio? Mark Twain was a big fan of, uh, of Blind Toms, and he would write... You know, he would do music crit- critiques, et cetera, and he wrote a, a kind of a critique of Blind Tom that, uh, how, how should I say it? I, th- I, I have a high regard for Mark Twain. I, I, I love who he was and, and, and the way that he, uh, the, the contributions he made. But I think, it, I think it was important in the context of Blind Tom for Blind Tom to have a voice against or in, in, in response to Mark Twain's um, characterization of Blind Tom's consciousness. And so, just like what happened with the Berryman Brown poem, I did something similar, where you have Mark Twain's quote on one side and on the other side, there's uh, Blind Boone's response to it, which gives Blind Boone, the la- Blind Tom, I should say, the last word in the equation. Mm-hmm. And, and gives us a different understanding 
of perhaps what was going through Blind Tom's mind. You know, we don't not have any real clear idea what his consciousness was, what he was thinking. Um, but I think that he did know, he had this understanding of himself and his music that was not given due credit in Mark Twain's uh, uh, rendition yeah. of him, you know? And with uh, Irving Berlin, well, basically... There was a, uh, a real dispute between him and Scott Joplin about uh, one of his tunes, one of Scott Joplin's tunes that was uh, fundamental to his last opera called Tremonitia. And uh, it was such a difficult dispute that at one point Irving Berlin took out an ad in, an, in a paper pretty much declaring he, that he was the... Uh, sole author of this very popular tune that was hot on the charts called Alexander's Ragtime Band. You may have heard of it. And uh, so, so the contention is that, is that uh, what, I, what I really bring to light is the contention between him and Scott Joplin and, uh, and Scott's claim to that tune, so to speak. It's about, you know, character and it's about, uh, it's about ownership yeah, and mastery <laughs> to a certain degree, mm-hmm. and, and and I would say one other thing is that um, in that poem, that Berryman Brown poem, I was I did my best to make them syllabically symmetrical. Mm-hmm. So that the Berryman Brown is syllabically symmetrical, and the Irving Berlin is syllabically symmetrical. So in other words, Berryman has just as many syllables on every line as Henry Box Brown does. And Irving Berlin has just as many syllables on every line as Scott Joplin does. Wow. So there you go. So there's a character in the book that has a literal mask, Julius Trotter. Yes. Can you talk about who Julius Trotter is? Julius Trotter is an imaginary character. Much to my surprise, I found myself creating this imaginary character that... uh, that was on a kind of a quest for the purity of ragtime. And, he's, and he has this idea about, uh, about Scott Joplin and, and, and his um, kind of being the last real link between him and his own past is really what it turns out to be. He wears a mask because he went to World War One. He went went and fought with the 369th, which is the all-black regiment, and that uh, that won many many awards. But another little story out of the 369th is that there was a very famous jazz band that went with them, headed by one James Reese Europe, who's actually. By I would wager by far the most important and most under most underrated jazz figure in American history. Mm. This is a man who uh, was responsible for building a, a black, more or less a black musicians' union in New York in the early part of the of the twentieth uh, century. Um, 
He's responsible for recording some of the first jazz tunes. And as a matter of fact, he recorded some of them. Some of them were uh, made under the duress of being in combat during World War I with troops in act, you know, on the front lines with the French. And um, came back to the uh, to, uh, United States after the war, was touring and had his had his uh, jugular slit by one of his uh, one of his bandmates. Wow. Yeah, 1919. Well, what in reading the the Trotter and then the <laughs> but, you know, we don't even talk about <laughs> Trotter yet, right? Well, but, but I, I want to hear about Trotter, and I also want to hear about um, him in relation to Scott Joplin because my when I imagine you as I'm reading the book, it feels to me, and I wonder if this is true. Um, it feels to me like Joplin in some ways is the heart of the book mm-hmm. that you have a special affection for him and maybe a special yeah. interest in the reclamation of the music that uh, of ragtime that yeah. has been sort of dismissed. And I, I would love to hear if I'm right. off beat on that. Or... Well, he's well, well, Joplin does have a special place in the book because he's the, he really takes, he gets the most words in the book by far. Um, he also, you know, those those interviews serve to kind of uh, serve serve as a vehicle for a kind of uh, um, uh, compassion that I felt was needed to be need was needed to kind of leaven some of the experiences in, in the book, you know? There's a through story about this guy who's in search of something. It's, it's kind of a blues story because he ends up at a crossroads and makes decisions. I'm talking about Ju- uh, Julius Trotter. And it's also about, really it's about, a lot of it's about the death of Scott Joplin. He died on April Fool's Day, 1917. Uh, we're coming up on the... Uh, centennial anniversary of his, of his death next year um, but it's he he was um he's, he was just a, a really interesting figure but he was uh, he was really difficult to to do in a in a in the sense of a poem because most people know about Scott Joplin they've heard his name so I, I wanted to write about him but I wanted to make him more remote in a certain kind of way yeah you know and so these are fictional interviews oh, yeah. mm-hmm. by a, mm-hmm. conducted by a fictional by, figure. Yeah, conducted by an entirely fictional person. But some of the people that are interviewed in these interviews, they, they actually existed. The wife, his wife, you know, really existed. Lottie was, really existed. Sam, the other piano player, who was a real guy. What about the idea that near the end of his life when he had syphilis, he was... Right creating a new type of music that yes, that yeah. was a huge departure for him. Right. Was that yeah. true? I did. I Well, you know, syphilis affects your nervous system so that you don't have the kind of control over your nerves. Now, I don't know what, what he was doing towards the end of the year, but what I like to imagine is him playing something that sounded like modern jazz. You know him playing beyond his his the disability of his uh, of his uh, of his condition and breaking through that in order to create a kind of music that was 
Now, what would what would um, I don't know? What would McCoy Tyner sound like to somebody in nineteen fifteen? Or what would you know Cecil Taylor right. sound like to somebody at night? You know, I maybe no, maybe he was he was foreshadowing something that hadn't been heard yet, but was still that was still able to you know bring a kind of feeling of awe or or a feeling of of uh, of sorrow and blessedness to the people that were listening, even as they knew that he was about to, you know, pass from the planet. Mm. And that's what I was thinking about, Scott. Like, maybe in his condition, he was able to see beyond where he was. You know? Well, let me ask you about this, I mean, this sense that, I got that sense, too, that that era was was sort of um, foreshadowing a new era of music that maybe he wouldn't get cre- credit for. Mm-hmm. But there's also a sense in reading your poems while they're steeped in history that there's something, like an edge of something that's contemporary. And I wondered if it came out of your um, work in performance and spoken word poetry. Yeah. Um, is there Are there elements that are not um, historically uh, of the time that you're de- portraying that are coming into this intentionally I'm as sure- part of what you're doing? Well, there are a few. There's a few times where I want I want to, you know, give a quick, a very very subtle quick wink to hip hop. I like to. Just, I didn't want to like linger too long in that neighborhood because yeah. I just I I didn't think it was gonna work. But but as a cu- couple of quick winks to the vernacular of hip hop, there there's um, and I think um. The main, the main thing, what, what, there's a lot of rhyme in this book that I was uh, very, and I st- still feel a, a, like very like, uh, Jess, you can't, you can't rhyme that much. <laughs> it's, it's the 21st century, man. You can't do that. But at the same time, there was, the, I felt like. These poems, this writing is in communication with them. And I feel like talking to them or with them or alongside them more in a, in a way that they might be able to relate to more. And so hence, and there's also the, the idea of selling a show. Yeah. You know? And there's a lot more like, rhyme in music lyrics, and we're looking at right, musicians. Right. Well, and, well, and you're, you're talking about an, the interlocutor trying to sell this, uh, the barker, you know. The and, step right up. Uh, step right up, step right up, et cetera. And uh, in the introductions, you know, this this kind of, you know, kind of sliding into rhyme a lot. Uh, and I was I was kind of leaning on that a little to... to, to uh, to push that door open into rhyme, but not go too too deep into it. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think I think that I think it's it's hard for me to tell the degree to which um, I brought the 21st century into talking about these people because I know it's all over it, but I just can't see it. Sure, you know. Well, can you talk a little bit about Kaveh Kanem? You you uh, attended yeah. multiple times, and you've you've yes. worked there also. It, as an administrator, yeah. um, mm. what influence has it had on you and, and 
as a poet? Can you talk? I would probably say that it, it, it would be safe to say that I would not be sitting here talking to you about this at all without Comic-Con. Uh, for me, it was a, it's a pivotal fellowship in my life. Um, it's reached 20 years of age, of age today. As a matter of fact, it's, it's funny you should ask because I just wrote a blog about uh, on the Poetry Foundation about oh, really? about uh, Conum, and it just got published today. But uh, I owe I owe a lot to Conum. It's a it's a very I it's my contention. It's it's hard for me to tell as I say in the blog because I've been in the middle of it. And I don't have a whole lot of distance from it, but I would bet that it's it's probably the most influential um, poetry fellowship in American poetry in the last generation. Hmm. I would say that I say that based on the number of people that have come out of it and have done extremely productive and influential work, the number of organizations. That it has influenced, and the uh, and the um, and the number of uh, publications that have sprung from its the members of its fellowship, and the way that has it, it has been a major force in changing the face of American poetry. Could could you speak to maybe a teacher or two who particularly influenced you, or maybe a, a... Uh, some sort of writing advice that is stuck in your brain that you, that you keep hearing in your ear as you write uh, from Kavi Khanum. Yeah, or just in general as yeah. a, as you studied poetry. Well, you know, um, I think that um, it's it's weird because I guess I'm the age now that I, that my mentors were when they met me, which is a weird, strange place to be. But but I think. That the some of the, some of the advice that I got um, that I've gotten from Kavi Khanum is to be as empathetic as possible in all things in life, and I'm still trying to be as trying to improve myself on that level. Um, to listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. To assume a listening posture, I, and I would say, you know, this to uh, to try one's best to understand the history of the country one is in, and uh, and I would say to 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 explore that history in one's work as vigorously as possible, and um, and to read voluminously. Mm. So. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, but there's so many, like, little small instances where someone teaches you things. Like, I mean, a primary influence for me was not, was, came just before Kavi Kahneman, and that would be Sterling Plump. You know, a very, you know, f fantastic poet out of Chicago who kind of took me under his wing when I was in my early 20s. And he taught me about the link between music and poetry and politics and history. That was my, like, my touchstone right there, looking at him and the way that he, and he also taught, he also taught me in a, in a, uh, 
in a very in a modeling way about integrity, you know. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I I lucked up. I got some I got some good folks in my life. Yeah. I'm guessing it might be too early to ask you this question, but after you've completed such a arduous feat with Olio, but do you have a sense of what your next project is going to be? I have some ideas in my head, but I don't really know how they're going to happen yet. So hopefully it won't take 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) But if it does, then it is what it is, you know? Yeah. Well, would you, if you don't mind, I'd love to finish with one last poem. And I I was thinking, uh, Minnehaha, the poem about, um, the sculpt, one of the sculptures of Edmonia Lewis. Oh yeah. Minnehaha. Yeah. Okay. Let me see. Uh, these poems, these poems are written in the voices of sculptures of Imonia Lewis. So the sculpture itself is the voice of the right, poem. Right, right, And this is, uh, these are, this is a real sculpture of hers, Minnehaha. Um, you know, Imonia Lewis, her, was Native American and black. And uh, she was uh, part uh, Chippewa, I think. And her father was a, a maroon escaped slave. Uh, fascinating history behind her, um, but she became one of the most you know, in- influential sculptures of her time. So, this is Minnehaha, Edmonia Lewis, Marble, 1868. What part of me is mine that was not mined from the mind of poets? Artists rewriting the past blow by blow till it's pulverized past the barely recognizable. I was born when I was written, then hammered out of a mountain. I was shattered and then broken, then sharpened to the human. I'm carved in marble that never dies, hardly crumbles. A stubborn queen who'll die only with those people who crave a ruling monarchy of fictions. Tales my sculptor plied to strike against their pale armies of indignities. History is their favorite lie. I found my face buried in its would-be pages, then excavated by a native who fled the country. Such was her misery at home in the land where my legend roams the canonized American poetry. I'm her stone arrow, her refusal to bow. I wear her chisel-sharp aim as my crown. You've been listening to Tayemba Jess read from Olio. It was a, a deep pleasure to have you on Between the Covers today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing me out. Yeah. We were Portland ta- rocks. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking today with Tayan Vajess, the author of Olio from Wave Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio, from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.